So a hobby that I've developed over the last few years that I've grown to really enjoy is running. I really like to run. I am not athletic at all. If you know me, uh, that may shock you, but it's true. I'm not very athletic, so I'm not great at it, um, but I am uh, pretty disciplined and uh, very competitive with myself. Uh, we've talked a lot about the Enneagram here, and we're doing an Ennea camp in a few weeks where we can dig into that together. Uh, I'm an Enneagram type three, so I just like want to go for it. If you don't know what that means, come to Ennea camp in a few weeks. Uh, so running works for me, and if you like to run, then you know that for runners, pace, pace is really important, right? Especially when you're running a race. Like if you run too fast, if your pace is too high at the beginning, then you're going to burn out and you're in for a very rough race. If you run too slow, then you lose important time that no matter how hard you try, you may not be able to make it up. So pace is really important. I learned that lesson the hard way. So last summer, I signed up to run a 5K. Uh, I had run a few half marathons, but I had never done what's considered a shorter distance, like a 5K. And so I signed up, it was in July, and um, I went into it excited and expecting just to, to kill it. I'd run several half marathons and done pretty well. So like what is 3.1 miles compared to 13.1, right? But I underestimated a few things. Number one, I underestimated uh, the power of the heat in Memphis in July. And I also underestimated the power of um, how foolish it is to drink a venti Starbucks iced coffee um, just before. It was a nighttime race and I'm not a nighttime person. So I'm like, man, I need some energy for this. So maybe this will help. Um, and I also underestimated the power of pace. And so I set out for this 5K. I line up in the front with the elite runners. <laughs> and about a mile in, I am saying to myself, if I move another inch, that venti iced coffee is just, is just coming back up. I'm sorry, I know that's not very irreverent, but it's true. And so I had the humiliating experience just about a mile in of uh, having to kind of kneel down on the side as all of these other runners just fly by me. And then I realized as I'm kneeling there that if I continue uh, to be still and not in motion, then I'm gonna vomit. So uh, I said, I've just gotta keep going. And I did and I finished I was really disappointed. I did not kill it. Um, but I did learn that pace is really important. And so you may be wondering what in the world that story has to do with anything. Um, I'll make a stretch here to make a connection. Give me a little grace this morning and, and stick with me. Um, so what if, what if that story is a metaphor for your own walk with Jesus? Stick with me here. <laughs> what if... The pace in which you want to live as a disciple of Jesus is completely antithetical to the way in which kingdom growth happens in the kingdom of God. As I've studied and as I've lived with this parable this week, 
there, there's been a lot that's convicted and challenged me, but one thing in particular is this truth that pace sometimes for the kingdom of God and for followers of Jesus living in the kingdom of God is really slow. And we don't always like that as 21st century Western people. So I think as we live with this parable this morning, there's a paradigm shift that can happen for you that can be really, really important. Because maybe you've burned out, like you're just sitting on the sideline and you're like, I am done. Maybe you're stunted in your growth. Maybe you're hitting this sort of glass ceiling in your walk with Jesus and in your life. And so I think there's a paradigm shift that can happen for you as an individual and for us as a church as we live with this parable that Jesus gives this morning. So let's unpack what Jesus says to us. Um, He starts in verse 30 and he lays out what he's doing. In verse 30, Jesus says, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? Now you need to know that parables were a very common rhetorical device in the first century world. We see this, if you've ever read any of the gospel accounts of Jesus, you see that Jesus uh, teaches using parables all the time, over and over and over. And for many of us, myself included, as Western 21st century people, parables can be really frustrating because they don't always give us all of the answers we want in sort of the clear, formulaic, black and white, three-point sermon sort of ways that we want to receive those answers. But I think that's important because I think in parables, what Jesus is doing is teaching us things that maybe our human brains can't fully comprehend. I think that parables are less about you trying to fully wrap your mind around something and more about you trying to fill your imagination with something. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is taking this very complex reality, the kingdom of God, this heavenly reality and communicating it in earthy ways. Not so that you can fully wrap your mind around it, but so that you can fill your imagination with it and so that you can be shaped into a kingdom person. The kingdom of God, the rule and reign of Jesus as Lord and King and Messiah spreading all over the earth is an incredibly complex reality. In fact, just a few weeks ago, Jamin, Robin, and I were at a pastor's conference in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, the keynote speaker uh, was a world-class, renowned Bible scholar, New Testament scholar uh, named Scott McKnight, who has, we were reading about him on Wikipedia, and we're just scrolling through all the books that he had published. Books, 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 commentaries, taught for many, many years at seminaries, tenured professor, this brilliant, literally respected, around-the-world New Testament scholar. And he's teaching, he's trying to explain, he's trying to unpack this incredibly complex reality, the kingdom of God. And at the end of his talk, we had no idea that this was gonna happen, but he said, hey, if there are any questions, we'll pass a mic around and we can have a conversation around this. And uh, there were some challenging things he said, some things that didn't sit well with, I think, a lot of people in the room. And so um, one of the first hands to go up when he invited Q&A, y'all have any guesses? Jamin's hand. 
Uh, everybody else in the room is like, yes, thank you, brother. We're thinking the same things as you are. And so Jamin goes to the front and starts challenging Scott McKnight on what the kingdom of God is and what it looks like. And at the end of the day, what happened was beautiful because this world-class New Testament scholar said to Jamin, he said, man, I totally see what you're saying. And we don't really know. Like, it's okay. We can disagree on this. We can agree to disagree because like, we can't really fully understand this. And so all that to say, like, this is, the kingdom of God is complex stuff. And we're not gonna fully wrap our minds around it, but we can fill our imagination with it and let it shape us from the inside out. So in verse 31, Jesus launches into this parable. He uses a metaphor to explain to us what the kingdom of God is like. And he says, it is like a grain of mustard seed, which is a really strange thing to say, right? Yeah? Maybe it's just me. Um, All right. The kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed, which is strange for us. At least it's strange for me. And it's also strange for uh, the people who would have been originally listening to Jesus. It would have shocked them. It would have surprised them. It it would have even disappointed them. And I think as we unpack what it means for us, it, it might do the same for us as 21st century people. Let me lay out for you just a couple of things that I've been reflecting on as I've thought about what it means that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. First, the obscurity of the kingdom, the obscurity of the kingdom. And then second, the pace of the kingdom, the pace of the kingdom. So mustard seeds were proverbially proverbially, uh, small and insignificant and obscure seeds in the first century world in which Jesus was living and teaching. And so Jesus is using this metaphor that's common in his day, but it would have been disappointing, like I said, A mustard seed is very small, very insignificant, very obscure. And Jesus says to his disciples, to his followers, he says, hey, the beginnings of the kingdom of God, it's like this little mustard seed, obscure and insignificant and small and tiny and seemingly unimportant. Now this would have been so disappointing for them to hear Because in the first century world, God's people, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, were very eager for the promised Messiah to come. They were living under the oppressive rule of the Roman kingdom. They hadn't heard from God through the prophets in over 400 years. They were likely filled with fear. They were lonely. They were depressed. God, where are you? Have you abandoned us? Come and rescue us from this oppressive rule. But in the first century world, word was starting to spread and hope was starting to blossom that maybe the promised Messiah was here. Maybe he was coming. The Messiah is near. And then... Jesus shows up on the scene. And Jesus is not at all, not at all what the people were expecting. Because Jesus shows up on the scene and he keeps trying to tell them what the kingdom of God is like. And he keeps trying to show them that 
I'm not going to rule through military might. I'm not here for political deliverance. I'm not here to overthrow the Roman rulers and set up in its place the kingdom of God. I'm not here to conquer. Instead, I'm here to serve. I'm not here to be served. I'm here to serve, and I'm here to give my life as a ransom for many. I'm here to love. Instead of raising up this powerful military force, I'm here to spend years investing in this small, ragtag crew of societal outcasts. And y'all can't comprehend it at all, Jesus would have said. I'm not here to conquer in the ways that you think I'm here to conquer. I'm actually here to be conquered myself so that through being conquered, I won't just conquer this human kingdom, but I'll conquer all of the forces of evil at work in the world through my incarnation and life and death and resurrection and ascension. I'll conquer evil itself. Amen. And people just could not wrap their minds around Jesus. He was so surprising to them. And he should be surprising to us as well. Because there's something about us that I know is true, and it's this, that we're not, attract, we're not attracted to obscurity, right? We're attracted to influence. We're not attracted to powerlessness. We're attracted to power. We're not attracted to insignificance. We're attracted to significance. In fact, I think this is what lies underneath this kind of like celebrity culture that we have in our day, this obsession with celebrities that exists in a weird way even inside the church itself. Listen to what Eugene Peterson says about this weird celebrity culture we have. He says, fan clubs encourage secondhand living through pictures and memorabilia, autographs and tourist visits, we associate with someone whose life is, we think, more exciting and glamorous than our own. We find diversion from our own humdrum existence by riding on the coattails of someone exotic. We do it because we are convinced that we are plain and ordinary. The town or city that we live in the neighborhood we grew up in, the friends we are stuck with, the families or marriages that we have all seem undramatic. We see no way to be significant in such settings with such associations. So we surround ourselves with evidence of someone who is. We stock our fantasies with images of a person who is living more adventurously than we are. We're, we're repulsed by our undramatic lives, and we desire instead dramatic. But this isn't the way of the kingdom of Jesus. Do you remember the Beatitudes that we spent months unpacking uh, about a year ago? That it's not the rich and wealthy and influential and powerful who are close to the kingdom, who are blessed by Jesus. Instead, it's the poor, the vulnerable, the weak, the mourning ones, the meek. 
It's the ones who seem like they're on the fringes of society, who are actually closest to the kingdom of Jesus, who are blessed by Jesus. So you can't grow in this kingdom that Jesus came to bring. You can't grow in the ways of Jesus until you can embrace obscurity. Embrace obscurity because that's the way the kingdom works in this world. There's something else about the seed, a mustard seed, and it's, it's the pace in which a mustard seed grows, the pace of the kingdom. So there's something about seeds. I've thought a lot about seeds this week, uh, probably more than I have in a long, long time. And there's something about seeds. Um, if you consider a seed in and of itself, like it's just a seed, it won't do anything. It'll remain small and insignificant and obscure. But if the seed is planted, if the seed is sown and planted in the right environment, then all of a sudden it can grow roots that spread and life can spring up. Life that actually can provide nourishment and life to all those around it. If it's planted and if it's rooted, but the growth of a seed into something that's life-giving and nourishing for the world is frustratingly slow. Yesterday, I was hanging out with um, the Matisses. They came over to our house for a bit, and um, there's a tree in front of our house. It's called a dwarf magnolia tree. And Kevin was commenting about how big the tree had gotten. And I was remembering these, um, these pictures that I stumbled a, a, upon recently uh, where the tree was about my height. And here we are a few years later and the tree is as tall as our house is. But it's something that I don't notice, right? It's something that Kevin driving by our house every day like doesn't look and see the tree growing. It happens over years. It happens over lots of time. Uh, this weekend was uh, my daughter Jude's first birthday. That was really fast, it's crazy. Um, and so yesterday, we threw a party for uh, Jude and her cousin, Taylor Morgan's son, Hank, who both turned one. It was a fun day out at Shelby Farms. And uh, Morgan uh, did a great job of decorating. And there are all these pictures of Jude and Hank uh, from the time they were a baby all the way uh, kind of chronicling the last year of their life. And so something that struck me is like, I don't notice how big Jude is getting because I see her every day. I don't notice how much she's changing until I looked back at these pictures from when Jude was four weeks old or two months old. I'm like, wow, she looks so different because she's so cute. I'd love to show you all some pictures. Uh, first, let's look at a two-month two old picture of Jude. There she is. And now let's look at a 12-month-old, a one-year-old picture of Jude. She looks so different. She's still cute. She's still beautiful, but she looks so different in a matter of 10 months. But again, it's something that I don't notice when I see her and when I hold her and when I play with her every day. But when I look back, I can see, wow, over weeks and months, you are growing and you are changing and you are maturing. And that's the same way that life happens. Maturing happens for followers of Jesus in the kingdom of God. But we don't really like that. 
Because in 2018, we like instant. We like fast. We like efficient. We don't want slow internet. I don't want to wait four days for a package to arrive at my house. I want it now. Speed. We're all about making things happen quickly. And again, this seeps into our church culture. And instead of experiencing transformation in God's kingdom following Jesus, what we crave, what we're addicted to instead is a hit of inspiration that lasts maybe a week. And so we're addicted to inspiration that lasts a week and we miss out on transformation that takes decades. We hop around from church to church looking for the best experience that'll give us that hit of inspiration that'll last us. And we miss out on being rooted and planted and growing up over days and months and weeks and years and decades into the people of God that he would have us to be. Listen again to another quote from Eugene Peterson. There is a great market for religious experience in our world. Isn't that weird? The word market and religious experience in the same sentence. There's a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. We're addicted to inspiration that lasts us for a week. And so we miss out on transformation that takes decades. We miss out on transformation that's portrayed with beautiful imagery in Psalm 1. Again, another another metaphor of a plant. As you start to read scripture now, you're going to see that plant and tree images are all over the place, maybe because God is trying to communicate to us this important reality. We miss out on this transformation in Psalm 1. Listen to this beautiful image that the psalmist gives us. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Like, doesn't that stir you somewhere deep down in your soul? You can be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Doesn't that sound rich and nourishing? Don't miss out on the transformation that takes decades and decades and years and years. And then look in verse 32 at the sort of fruit that this sort of kingdom bears, that this sort of kingdom person bears. When it is sown, this mustard seed, this insignificant obscure seed, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. This little seed 
grows into something that provides life for everything that's around it. It's nourishing to the world. The the word that comes to mind for me that we say a lot here at Christ City is refreshing. This sounds refreshing. Like this, this seed that grows up into a beautiful plant that puts out shade where birds can come and make nests and have respite and rest and refreshment. Like a cool drink of water on a hot day. Or imagine you spend a day hiking and you're hot and you're tired and then you ascend a hill and come over the hill and on the other side you see a patch of trees with beautiful shade overlooking this clear spring that's peaceful and beautiful, refreshing. In Jeremiah 31, God is speaking to Jeremiah about what his coming kingdom will be like. And the Message Bible translates some of these words so beautifully. Listen to what the Message Bible says Jeremiah 31, 25, this is God speaking. I'll refresh tired bodies. I'll restore tired souls. I will refresh tired bodies. I will restore tired souls. If you're tired, your body, your soul then God wants to provide refreshment for you. And I love this parable. We've been thinking about it and reading it for about a year now as staff and pastors because it's the story of Christ City Church. The mission statement we developed um, Lots of conversation and lots of prayer. The mission statement that we developed for our church that we're going to talk a lot more about this coming fall is that we want to be a church that makes disciples of Jesus who recover their lives, reimagine their purpose, and refresh their world. Doesn't this sound like this parable? Recover your life through the slow-paced nourishing soil, being rooted, being planted for a long time and maturing and growing up into a disciple of Jesus who can provide life for the world. Reimagining your purpose, not through chasing after importance and strength and power and influence, but instead through embracing obscurity and loving those who are on the fringes and learning from those who are on the fringes because maybe they have a lot to teach us about Jesus and about what the kingdom of God is like. Reimagining our purpose so that we can be a cool sip of cold water on a hot day to the world around us, in our families, in our workplaces, every nook and cranny of Memphis, all around the world, London, so that we can bring refreshment, the refreshment of Jesus everywhere that we go. So the way I want to, um, to close this morning, um, every week as a church, this is a core value of who we are, we, um, we take communion together. 
because we believe is clear throughout scripture and throughout the history of the church, the tradition that's been handed down to us over time, that coming to the communion table is where you can meet with Jesus. We say that all the time, but think about how crazy that is. This last week, um, Ascension Day happened, where the church around the world remembers the reality, the truth that Jesus was really here on earth and that Jesus really did die and he rose from the dead and he spent 40 days with his closest followers and then he ascended, he left them. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty and he sits and rules and reigns, his kingdom is going forth. But Jesus promises, this is, this is crazy, it's actually better for you if I leave you because when I leave you, I'm going to send the comforter to be with you, the promised Holy Spirit. So this is crazy because in the bread and in the wine, we come into contact with Jesus himself. Though he has ascended and though he sits at the right hand of God in some spiritual way that, again, we can't fully wrap our minds around, maybe we can fill our imagination with, we meet with our Lord and Savior, Jesus himself in communion. And so every week we say some liturgy together that's from uh, the Book of Common Prayer. And uh, a few years ago, it struck me in a deep way because I was in, uh, I spent a couple of weeks in Kenya and I worshiped on a Sunday morning with a church and it came time for communion, the climax, the highlight of the service. And the church together started saying this communion liturgy that in just a few hours, my church back home in Memphis would be saying together the exact same words. When I experience this liturgy, I feel so much less lonely because I know that saints around the world and throughout time have said these words together and come around the body and bread, the body and blood of Jesus. So every week we say some liturgy together, but here's what I wanna do this week. The liturgy we use is just a short, um, abbreviated version of the more full liturgy around the communion table. And I'm always nervous if we, if we use too much liturgy, people are gonna get bored. It's not gonna be fast paced enough. It's not gonna be entertaining enough. We have short attention spans, myself included. So we're gonna lose people if we use a longer liturgy. But then as I sat with this parable this week, it struck me like maybe this is the soil that we need to be planted in. Week after week after week, month after month, year after year, maybe if we're planted in this soil and we surrender to the process and trust God, God will grow us into something beautiful that will bring great nourishment and refreshment for the world around us. So I'm gonna pray. And then we're gonna say some liturgy together. It's gonna to be longer than usual. Uh, and then we'll meet with Jesus in communion. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for this parable. The kingdom of God, what a complex and rich reality and truth. Thank you for communicating with us in ways that we can understand allowing us to fill our imagination with these good things 
that's a gracious and kind thing, Jesus, that you've done for us, communicating with us in ways that we can understand and relate to. So Lord, this morning I pray that um, our hearts would be soft and we wouldn't just be looking for this inspirational fix, but instead we would surrender to you the long, slow process of being planted in good soil and that we would see your kingdom grow and grow and expand. We would see each one of us as followers of Jesus in your kingdom, following in your way, Jesus, grow and grow and expand and influence in the world, bringing refreshment. Jesus, thank you for meeting with us here in this time and this space through these elements. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please stand up and we'll say this liturgy together. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Therefore, we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name. Say this with me. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. And when we had fallen into sin and become subject to evil and death, you in your mercy sent Jesus Christ, your only and eternal son, to share our human nature, to live and die as one of us, to reconcile us to you, the God and Father of all. He stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself in obedience to your will, a perfect sacrifice for the whole world. On the night when Jesus was handed over to suffering and death, he took bread. And when he had given thanks to you, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. After supper, he took a cup of wine. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for their forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. We celebrate the memorial of our redemption, O Father, in this sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Recalling his death, resurrection, and ascension, we offer you these gifts. Sanctify them by your Holy Spirit to be for your people the body and blood of your Son, the holy food and drink of new and unending life in him. Sanctify us also that we may faithfully receive this holy sacrament and serve you in unity, constancy, and peace. And at the last day, bring us with all your saints into the joy of your eternal kingdom. All this we ask through your son, Jesus Christ, 
By him and with him and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. And now, as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to say together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Alleluia. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Alleluia. The gifts of God for the people of God, take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving.